Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It's been six weeks since Hurricane Maria and Ma- hit Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico is still without running water or electricity. Given that, it's understandable why some Puerto Ricans have moved to the mainland or are planning to leave. Today, where we live, we check in on local efforts in Connecticut to help the displaced. Who are the people or the groups helping those who've moved here? Everything from enrolling to schools to finding a place to live. Coming up, we get an update from WMPR's newsroom on a story about a Hartford man who moved his two teenage boys here from the island. And we'll find out how state colleges and universities are responding to displaced students looking to continue their higher education. Now, have you helped move your relatives to Connecticut from Puerto Rico? We know Maria and Irma also devastated the U.S. Virgin Islands. Have you or your relatives also moved to the mainland? What has been your experience? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, in studio with me now is Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas. She's education reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You've been doing some reporting on the impact here in Connecticut schools. Uh, We understand that uh, more than 6,000 public school students have left Puerto Rico and have started school um, in the mainland. Um, Tell us about the number here in Connecticut. Sure. So there have been 500 kids who have shown up in Connecticut schools that have been reported so far, at least that many. So the State Department of Ed last Monday did a survey of how many, asking districts, how many children have showed up to your to your school from Puerto Rico in the aftermath of, of Maria. And there was 500 people, 500 children so far of the districts that responded. Um, only about half the districts responded, but they were the larger districts and districts that have historically had more students from Puerto Rico. And so districts like Hartford had an additional 88 students, Waterbury 86, New Britain 66, New Haven 64, Bridgeport 58, Wyndham 21, East Hartford 17, and Manchester 14. So you're talking about, for some districts, a a pretty large influx of students from Puerto Rico in a very short period of time. Uh, I should mention, though, that that's not the only influx of students for some of these districts, you know. Places like Hartford and New Haven, they see a steady increase of students from all over the place on a regular basis. It's a very transient population. So they're um, a little more equipped to handle, you know, influxes of students, I would say, from some of the conversations I've had. They have welcome centers. You know, there's one in downtown Hartford right on Main Street um, that are well equipped with, you know, some food on site, you know, bus passes, that sort of thing. Um, Whereas, you know, some of your smaller districts, it might be more sort of left scrambling how to, to really accommodate. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from representatives from both uh, the Hartford Public Schools and New Haven Public Schools about, um, as you mentioned, Jackie, the, the process that they've had already in place to to welcome children not only from Puerto Rico after this disaster, but from uh, many other uh, situations. But talk us, walk us through the process. We know that there's the McKinney-Vento Act. How does this law help this process along, especially for children that are leaving um, situations where they may have lost paperwork, important records for them as they transfer? Sure. So every Monday and Friday, a flight directly from Puerto Rico comes to Bradley 
airport in Connecticut. On each of those flights, there's about 150 people. About 60% of those people, the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protections estimates are people who are displaced. A large share of those, they say, are children. And so those children need an education. Our federal laws say that we have to provide them unfettered access to our schools, immediate enrollment. There cannot be a delay because they're waiting for immunization records. There cannot be a delay because they're waiting for paperwork. Whatever sort of delay that might be in place from someone who is coming here potentially with nothing, um, that can't be an obstacle. So there are some very strict laws in place at the federal level to ensure that it's a seamless transition or should be ideally a seamless transition. So um, last week I wrote a story about how many children have in fact showed up here and, and are enrolled in Connecticut schools. And some of the responses and emails that I received are like, why are we doing this in Connecticut? And so like my initial reaction is, well, because it's a federal law, Connecticut doesn't really have a choice to enroll these students. You know, maybe they would make that decision um, because it's the right thing to do. But just as we have to enroll someone if they move here from Massachusetts or Ohio or name your state, you know, Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. So we have to enroll them just as we did anyone else. And by the way, um, students who are undocumented and here illegally, we have to enroll them too because of a U.S. Supreme Court decision. So we, our schools don't get to make that decision of who they enroll and who they don't. On the phone with us now is Charlene Russell-Tucker. She's Chief Operating Officer of the Connecticut State Department of Education. Charlene, welcome to where we live. Thank you very much, Lucy. Nice to have to be here. I understand you're the point person for school district superintendents across the state who may have questions about the process. Walk us through um, what you've been hearing from districts, both large and small. Uh, thank you very much. And, and Jackie did a nice job <laughs> in uh, talking about the federal law. And so what we've been doing here is making sure that the districts, all of them, have all the resources and information that they need around the federal law, uh, including information. So when, when Jackie talked about immediate enrollment, even if you're lacking documents, there is a question about immunizations. Uh, I think that's one key question. And so we have worked, uh, our Department of Public Health has done a really great job and has worked uh, with, with uh, Puerto Rico uh, specifically, and they provided information that we provided to our districts on immunizations. Uh, the Department of Public Health has provided information and a point person to assist districts, school nurses, who wants to get information and immunization history or record for students, there's a process in order to get that because there's a Puerto Rico immunization registry uh, for them to, to obtain information. So I have been providing information and supports for districts, uh, answering questions around McKinney-Vento, answering questions around immunizations, uh, and, and making sure the folks here in the agency who provide that direct support are available to answer those questions. Uh, we heard Jackie say that there's about 500 students from Puerto Rico that have moved here or that are enrolled uh, since Hurricane Maria. Uh, do you have the most up-to-date number, Charlene? We now have, as of this morning, for those reporting, we have over 600, uh, and not all the numbers are in, uh, so the, the numbers are certainly climbing. So with the, the influx, and I know it's spread out among districts, so maybe it's not uh, that many, uh, a lot of stress on one particular district, but when you have more students, uh, there are more resources to handle them. I'm just curious how school districts are handling that in terms of um, fig figuring out which classroom they go into so that, that they don't have a high number of students, or if you have uh, the right amount of teachers or resources for them. 
And, and so those are all great questions, and I, I believe that they're all grappling with that. Uh, and, and as uh, you know, Jackie mentioned earlier, uh, some of our, our urban centers are more prepared, I would say, and, and have resources. But the questions that they're grappling with are exactly the ones, Lucy, that you just mentioned. Uh, Hartford, I know you're going to be talking to. So districts are individually developing, or they have individually developed plans. What is the appropriate school? Maybe what's the appropriate classroom uh, based on grade level uh, that will be more supportive and helpful uh, to students? And also working in partnerships with community organizations uh, as well for additional resources and supports that children and family may need. Uh, Jackie Rabe Thomas is here uh, from the Connecticut Mirror. You mentioned um, some of the larger districts that have the processes in place, but what about the smaller districts? Have you been hearing about any issues? Not any uh, specific issues. Uh, however, understanding that I think most of them are really looking to district partners uh, that can be supportive in their efforts. Uh, the ones and twos and threes, is, as you can imagine, are probably a little bit easier uh, to accommodate and to work with than the larger numbers that Jackie spoke about earlier. Jackie? So one thing that I have heard is that, you know, Hartford Center, its Welcome Center, has a very small budget. It relies really heavily on donation, outside donations, and they and they have been receiving large amounts of donations. Um, but state enrollment counts, so when it comes to state funding for this, um, enrollment counts are taken in October, and so that's going to determine, my understanding as of right now, is that's going to determine how much state funding they get per student enrollment through the state's primary grant for education cost sharing. And then the other thing is if Connecticut decides to apply for federal money through FEMA for, for people who are coming here, it's really important that they're registering through FEMA and, and acknowledging that they're in Connecticut because that will also play a role in Connecticut's, potentially play a role in Connecticut's application. And, and for people to, in, to you know, register with FEMA, it also ensures them, or not doesn't ensure them, but it sets them up to potentially get transitional housing vouchers for hotels when they move here. If they don't have family members, it potentially sets them up to get some unemployment assistance for if they've lost their job, if they just need some help with mitigating the, that lost income that they're having. Um, you know, the obvious one is if their housing was destroyed back home and potentially get some, some funding to help repair that damage. And then for Connecticut, the benefit is if we do apply for FEMA assistance, an emergency declaration or, a, or whatever it is, um, that potentially helps bolster our application as well. So, Charlene, it sounds like uh, additional funds might be coming, but right now uh, districts are really working with what they got to help. And as you said, there's at least 600 new students from Puerto Rico that are enrolled across the state. Uh, that's that's exactly right. Uh, that they are indeed working with the resources that they have as as best they can. Uh, to the point that Jackie made, uh, it is important to note for your listeners that the state has actually, I think, done a great job in making sure that we have constant communication across all our state agencies and other groups. Uh, for example, 211, who's put out a nice resource guide for families. Uh, putting information out uh, in Spanish, in English, uh, not just for uh, those coming in from Puerto Rico, but also from the Virgin Islands, I was, as was mentioned earlier. And so the issue of making sure uh, their, their folks meet in the planes when they come in and, 
And so state agencies and other entities, we are on a call every week. Uh, so we really have a good sense of what is occurring, what's going on with housing, what's going on uh, basically across the system. And so we're able to be agile in our responses uh, and collaboration for, for our arrivals. Now, Jackie uh, is also educational reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You've done some reporting on English language learners around the state. You know, How does that play into helping a lot of these students coming from Puerto Rico where English may not be their primary language. So again, these uh, if you look at where students are going, Hartford, they have the largest number of English language learners than any district in the state already. So um, they have, by law, if if a district has, or if a school rather, has more than 20 students who speak, whose primary language is another language, that school is required to provide bilingual instruction. So native in- instruction in their native language. Um, so in Hartford, there are a few programs like that. Um, it's a transitional rapid exit from those bilingual education programs to get them up to speed with their, um, it, so they can be learning in English. Um, again, in the smaller districts, it's not set up that way um, just because they haven't historically had to have bilingual instruction in their schools. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not required to be provided services. So there, they are still, English language learners do have to be identified by law, and they do have to have some services offered to them, um, not necessarily in their native instruction. Uh, Charlene Russell Tucker, Chief Operating Officer for the Connecticut State Department of Education. Before we head into break, I am curious um, for some of the the school districts who may not have uh, the the a lot of the instructors to depend on for uh, English language learners. What are some short term solutions there? Uh, well, you know, so uh, basically looking to see if there are other uh, if they can bring in uh, substitutes uh, it would certainly be an option to consider. And sometimes you do have the staff in already in the school. It's a matter of where they're placed and what it is that they are responsible for. So I believe that folks are, you know, making those shifts uh, as necessary based on the number of students that they're bringing in. Uh, meanwhile, we've heard from Southern Connecticut State University. They've actually started a program to train more uh, ESL, ELL instructors, but that's over the long term. So we'll have to uh, check in with them to see uh, what the outcome is there. But I want to thank Charlene Russell-Tucker again, Chief Operating Officer of the Connecticut State Department of Education. Charlene, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas is in studio with me, education reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. As we're looking at how Connecticut's been working to accommodate Puerto Ricans and others who've moved to the mainland after uh, Hurricane Maria and other natural disasters. Coming up, we hear from someone from the WNPR newsroom, WNPR's Jeff Cohen, who has reported on a story of a local teenager from Puerto Rico now enrolled in Hartford Public Schools and later fulfilling the educational needs of new residents is important. But what about other necessities like a place to live and employment? We're going to hear more about that later. We also want to hear from you. Have you helped a relative or others move from Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria? What's been their experience here in Connecticut? We want to hear their story. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about how Connecticut's helping Puerto Ricans six weeks after Hurricane Maria devastated the island. Now, a couple of weeks ago, WMPR sent a reporting team to the island because the state's connection to Puerto Rico is strong. Nearly 8% of Connecticut's residents are Puerto Rican. Now, have you experienced or helping relatives or others move here? What has been their experience? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now is WMPR's news director, Jeff Cohen. Uh, one of uh, the part of the team that mm-hmm. went to Puerto Rico just a couple of weeks ago now? That's right. I think we're back two and a half weeks or so, two weeks. So you met a lot of different people. We've been hearing your reports as well mm-hmm. as uh, digital reporter Ryan Karen King, mm-hmm. uh, great visuals on our website. Some of the people you've met, you've followed them as they've come into Connecticut. Tell us about that. Sure. And w- well, I'll say one thing that was notable when we were there was we didn't have to try very hard to find people from Connecticut. In fact, we didn't, in many cases, we didn't try at all. Mm-hmm. We were at a stream where water was com- people were coming to get water, and the guy, one guy who came down was from New Haven. Another woman lived in Hartford. So these are these connections are very rich. Uh, we did find uh, on the plane down a man who had, his name was Guillermo Clas. He was going to pick up his boys. He, his story was that he had to sell his car in order to, to, to buy the plane tickets to bring his teenage sons back. One of them is of high school age. The other one is a little older. And that uh, young man named Jomar uh, started a week ago yesterday, started his first day at Buckley High School uh, here in Hartford. So we went uh, last Monday morning early. Uh, <laughs> uh, high school starts early, by the way. Uh, we went uh, uh, to uh, go with Jomar on his first day of school, and we spoke with him a little bit uh, in advance in his house just about how he was feeling. No sé, este, primera vez que voy, primera vez que vengo a una escuela de, de acá. What he was saying there was like, look, this is the, the first time I'm in a new school here. I'm not used to school here. I'm used to seeing my friends and saying hello to them, and I'm used to school in English. And so he was straight up nervous, <laughs> and you could see yeah. it. And with a reporter and a microphone in his face, it just adds to the <laughs> It's why we didn't hang out too long at school, because every ninth grader wants a reporter hanging out with him on his first day of school. Right? <laughs> but you, uh, so tell us a little bit more about his transition. You, talked, you walked with him uh, and ta- saw the interaction between teachers and what has been the response? What was interesting to me, uh, and and we spoke about this in our reporting, was this is a a deeply personal, deeply real, and you were speaking about this, Jackie, before, experience for this young one boy, Mm -hmm. right? He's never done this before. On the flip side, Buckley does this every day. Buckley High School does this. They have 40 welcome packets ready to go at any given time. So this many school districts are uh, very used to this sort of uh, influx of kids. By that point, this was a week ago, Buckley already had 17 kids, I think, from Puerto Rico. They have they speak um, maybe 20 languages or so in the school. So the school system was, was really well prepared. And here's uh, one, one, woman, one teacher, uh, she's an administrator there, Gretchen Levitz. Here's how she talked about it. Like I said, we have so many students here from other countries that come here new every single day. So it's nothing like he's the only one. And we expect more and more, especially from Puerto Rico as well. And we're ready for everybody. Go ahead. And so she's the program director uh, for, so she's checking in on how they're, who's arriving. And you mentioned the welcome packets. Do you have an idea of what's in those packets? I didn't get to see the, (laughs) you're a good editor. I didn't get to see what's in the welcome (laughs) packet. But uh, I do, she functions, uh, her role is sort of self-described and she would say this was sort of a school mom. That's how she, how she, how she pitches it a little bit. 
Um, but, you know, what was interesting and nice was as he arrived and we were in the, the big sort of entryway there at Buckley, there were two teachers who came up to him, to Jomar, who started speaking in Spanish to him and asking where he was from, and they were familiar with it. And I could tell that as you go through that process, um, that a little bit of the nerves, because they're used to it, right, um, that that approach, I think, can calm the nerves of an individual student. And it's hard being a new kid to any school, but you mentioned uh, Hartford. It's a very diverse school district. There's kids coming from all over the world who mm-hmm. maybe uh, understand that experience, maybe not from leaving because of a hurricane, but know what it's like to be new and it's a new culture uh, so that there are people, peers, that get where he's coming from. That's right. In fact, we met one young man right there that day, just by chance, actually. And you wouldn't think it was by chance, but it was, I promise. Uh, I think his name was Siobhan, and he was Siobhan Green. He was from Jamaica, and he had been here less than 11 months and, um, you know, spoke very frankly. He's like, I didn't know what, what, a, what a Puerto Rican person was before I got here. Uh, and I, I th- he said, I, you know, they were speaking Spanish. I thought they were, they were speaking about me. Um, so, and, and the two of them sort of linked up at the beginning, and Siobhan was sort of uh, an early morning ambassador, which was super adorable. And uh, it was just a great morning yeah. um, to see that how that transition worked. Now, you uh, met Jomar through his father, Guillermo mm-hmm. Claus. How's he doing? You know, I haven't checked in with him in about a week. I think he's doing all right. I saw on Facebook that his older son, William, uh, got a, I think he got some sort of beginning sorts of work, um, which is important because uh, he finished school uh, in Puerto Rico. So, But, you know, we, we, Guillermo Claus was with us that morning as we, we went with him together. Uh, and he could tell uh, that his that his son, Jomar, was a little nervous, too. You could tell he's a little nervous, but at the same time, he, he's looking forward to it. Uh, he was really excited. He was asking about, no, don't forget tomorrow, 7 o'clock, and wake up with the alarm. Oh, my God. You, you don't know. <laughs> I think that gets to the point, you know, uh, he, if we only understand people on the island through the lens of the hurricane, it's a very narrow understanding. These are humans who have first day of school jitters in a new school district and parents who get nervous along with their kids. And so it's, uh, it's deeply identifiable. Now, I mentioned that uh, this is part of a, a long-term reporting project mm-hmm. here at WMPR. If people go to our website, WMPR.org, uh, they'll see a, a box on the right-hand side, the island next door. Tell mm-hmm. us about what your p- future plans are and, and cover, continue to cover the story, Jeff. Thank you, and happy to. Uh, well, we're building out a nice new pretty website, so you can look at that hopefully uh, later this week, and you can see a lot of the visuals that we'll have there. Um, The plan is to, if we can, get there every couple months uh, in person, and the point is um, to report on this as though we would report on a major catastrophe one town over, because effectively for many people it is one town over in Connecticut. And so we have to tell that story. It is still very much an emergency response story, which is striking six weeks later or so. Right, so um, we have to treat it as though it's a, it is a neighborhood story because it, it very much is. And so we'll be back uh, at least. Uh, I'm thinking in the next couple three weeks we'll be back in Puerto Rico with a whole other set of stories. Thanks to WMPR's news director Jeff Cohen for telling us a little bit about this one family profile of uh, Connecticut residents uh, who are bringing their relatives uh, to the state after Hurricane Maria. This is where we live. Uh, We've heard that there are now 600 students from the island now enrolled in school districts across the state, including in Hartford, where we heard a little bit from Jeff about Jomar Kloss uh, being a student at Buckley High School. On the phone with us now from Hartford is Marta Bentham, Senior Executive Director of Family Services and Ombudsman at Hartford. Public Schools. Marta, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. 
Now, uh, tell us about uh, how many students from Puerto Rico and, and other places have been who have been displaced are now enrolled in the last uh, month or so, and you know how. Tell us, walk us through the process of how you welcome them. Okay, so uh, we have Harvard Public Schools has a, I would say, a great experience in welcoming students that are displaced. The the difference with the students that are displaced now uh, from the island of Puerto Rico or the U.S. Virgin Islands are that these are U.S. Americans, and people people were not used to that. We, in Hartford Public Schools, we have had several rounds of, of refugees from other countries that are coming, and they're refugees, so their needs were very different. And because of the staff that we have at Hartford Public Schools, we were able to make the difference immediately and follow up all of the things that the state and the U.S. government had dictated for the resettling of, of the students. So we got prepared by knowing that the first thing that these families needed was a funnel, a place where they all had to come through in order to receive the first thing that the children needed, was, which is the education. So in the G. Fox building or uh, 960 Main Street where the Board of Education is, in the first floor there is a very big space, very colorful, very everything is in several languages and everything like that. And um, we were able to have prepared uh, packets um, for all of the arriving students. Right now, as of yesterday, we have registered 160 students and we have received 102 families and today we are in the process of registering another 23. Uh, Jackie Rabe Thomas is with us in studio, Marta, education reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. So just talking about some of the, you know, first day jitters that Jeff mentioned, I sat in a new arrival summer program in Hartford over the summer and got to hear about a lot of those first day jitters that they experienced. Um, And they explained things like, you know, Simple things like, how do I find the bathroom when I get to school? You know, nobody's going to speak my language. Or, you know, how do I find the lunchroom? Or how do I, you know, understand what's going on in class? And what each one of them sort of told me in their own way is, I found a buddy. Or, you know, I found a teacher who understood what was going on. So in in the, in Hartford, there was a system set up to make sure that, you know, someone who is like them is in their classroom who's been in the district for a while or there's a teacher who's well aware that this student's going to need to know simple tasks like where's the bathroom or the lunchroom or or things like that because you know those are the things that this group of students told me is was on their mind and that's the only thing they could concentrate on is where's the bathroom (laughs) you know something as simple as that that's what happens at the welcome center the family comes in and we do i do a quick assessment where you come from to make sure that they are received with a welcoming, to make sure that the staff and that everybody receives them joyfully. We're glad that you're here. We acknowledge that it has been difficult. But then I need to find out, what did you come with? Did you come with any papers from school? No, I didn't. What was the last grade that you were in school? I think it was seventh grade. So I start to make this assessment, these very quick assessments, um, as to what they're going to need academically. Then I go into with another two staff members of mine, those that are going to need testing for Spanish, those that are, oh, I used to use glasses. I don't have glasses. They broke during the hurricane. 
We need to make all of these assessments and get all of these needs met so that they can start school, including getting them their uniforms, their shoes, their books, their book bags, their transportation, and finding a person inside the school and say, this is Susana. Susana Mejia is going to be waiting for you on such and such a day to register you. And Susana Mejia is there. And Susana Mejia is actually a family resource cent- uh, aid, or she is a social worker, or she is a, be- a behavior tech that will then introduce that child to somebody else that will come his buddy. But that's that's the purpose of doing the this very quick, very, very gentle assessment as they come in. Some of them do not have a place to stay. They're staying with relatives. Do you know how how temporary is that going to be? Because then after we have settled the child in school, then we start with the rest of the family. Uh, the case that you were talking with, Jomar class, um, and Guillermo class, mm. uh, we're in the process of working with his oldest son uh, who wants to get a job and who then wants to go on to take a technical school. So that's on the second tier of assistance from the Welcome Center. Now, Marta, we heard uh, from earlier from the State Department of Education, you know, state money, federal money to help with this influx could be forthcoming, but it's not here yet. So how has, how has that impacted the district in trying to, to accommodate these 160 students? Uh, it, is, it has not come. I don't know if it's going to come, uh, but I do know that uh, Hartford Public Schools Superintendent Leslie Torres Rodriguez sat with us very, very early during this process, and we shifted monies from some places, and we shifted, um, I should not say money, we shifted staff that was doing other duties that could be in classrooms with ELL students. Um, I brought in four, um, four students from University of Connecticut who want to be social workers, and they're doing their field study year, and they wanted to work with us on this. So we're stretching the money until the State Department of Education comes up with some money or the federal government. So we are, we are stretching as much as we can with the resources that we have and by being very creative with what the community is willing to give. Uh, meanwhile, I understand Hartford Public Schools, they're looking at uh, consolidating, maybe closing some schools in a, a few months. How will that impact um, the decisions made when you have the, these new students uh, in the, these neighborhoods, Marta? Okay, I don't think that that's going to be impacted. I, don't, I am almost sure, and I can say this with, with quite a straight face, I am almost sure that none of the students are going to be impacted because of the number of students that we have that are ELL students. Wherever, whatever the consolidation looks like, the people are center are going to be the students. So the consolidation is not going to impact the students. It may impact, you know, buildings or things like that. It is not about closing the education for students 
or impacting these students or any other students in Hartford Public Schools. This is where we live. Uh, on the phone with us, Marta Bentham, Senior Executive Director of Family Services and Ombudsman at Hartford Public Schools. Today we're looking at uh, the systems in place in Connecticut to help displaced uh, students and their families. In studio with me is WMPR News Director Jeff Cohen, also Jackie Rabe Thomas, Education Reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Jackie. So I should mention that all that we've been talking about are sort of the systems in place and how they should be working ideally. So that's not to say that I haven't heard over the years from advocates and attorneys and individuals saying, um, you know, I'm struggling to get enrolled. Primarily, it's revolved around, you know, getting foster kids enrolled in school or kids involved in the JJ system, juvenile justice system, or those who are undocumented. So I haven't heard any cases specific to those displaced by by Hurricane Maria, but they're protected under the same law. And I have heard in in the past that there are some shortfalls in in ensuring a seamless transition. So waiting on documentation or you need a social security number to enroll or you need these immunizations. Schools have been very innovative to try to overcome those barriers by setting up, you know, medical health centers and schools to, you know, go here and you can get your shots for free (laughs) or, you know, stuff like that. So, um, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I have heard of some obstacles in um, some schools in getting kids enrolled. I want to bring in another school district into this conversation. Uh, New Haven has also been welcoming uh, displaced students um, from Puerto Rico. On the phone with us now is Will Clark, Chief Operating Officer of New Haven Public Schools. Will, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. So how many students uh, has New Haven Public Schools welcomed in the last uh, month or so from Puerto Rico? We have uh, about 86, and that number continues to grow from Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, and actually a few from Mexico post-earthquake. Uh, and how are you addressing, I mean, New Haven is, is much like Hartford in terms of getting uh, families from all over the world for many different reasons. Talk us through some of the processes you already have in place. Um, yeah, that's true. New Haven um, is really blessed with uh, diversity and has been a, a district that's really embraced uh, diversity um, during the immigration issues that rose after the presidential election. Our mayor and superintendent, Mayor Harp and Superintendent Mayo, um, stepped up and made sure we pulled a group of people together to be clear of our position uh, with regard to welcoming students um, from all over the world and whatever their um, citizenship status is to welcome them and protect them and and keep schools as a sacrosanct um, area. And so all of those lessons and work and partnerships um, with our various community partners of Yale Law School and 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 Junta and Iris and many others uh, have continued and really provided provided a great framework for uh, this work associated with um, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and although they're citizens of the United States there and and can be considered more essentially like um, transfers and so forth um, we see a lot of similarities from the refugee immigrant population that we've dealt with uh, over the years as far as what they're coming with. And a lot of the um, information that your uh, last uh, guest from Hartford um, indicated is a similar experience here in New Haven. Uh, One thing we have done to um, further address some of the needs is really try to connect some of those additional dots uh, with our partnership with our local health department. We have school-based health clinics and as we try to enroll these kids, uh, we connect them with those services and try to put them in places that line up with their particular needs after we do a very similar assessment to what was described in Hartford. 
Um, the majority of our student population now is Hispanic. Um, so we have many programs, including dual language and um, welcome centers and, and so forth. So that transition can be a bit easier. But what we're finding is the, the layer of trauma and housing issues um, and other um, matters that were really related to the displacement is something we really need to be cognizant of and working with our legislative delegation in a group that the, the mayor has put together. We're really meeting weekly and reviewing the, the issues that we're all encountering, trying to funnel folks through our registration process, get them over to Junta so they can make sure they're registered through the FEMA process. We work with the New Haven Housing Authority to uh, try to accommodate as much as we can with respect to navigating that world of housing availability. Um, and our, our school-based health clinics also have social workers and bilingual staff that can help uh, with some of the uh, residual trauma and other needs of the transition that, that these students and their families may be suffering. And thankfully, with those many partnerships, Fairhaven Health, um, Cornell Scott Hill Health Center, Yale, um, and others are really able to connect some of these resources, many of which already exist, um, but it's just a matter of lining them up and making sure these folks are aware. We also really treat them as if they're coming in uh, under the McKinney-Vento Act and under essentially a homeless assumption that they don't have a permanent uh, place. So we've instituted those procedures and protocols immediately as well. So our parent liaison, Danny Diaz, and his team are, are there with backpacks and clothes and other donations uh, to help folks feel comfortable, um, feel um, accepted, and um, uh, connect some of those uh, dots as well. So that's uh, some of the efforts we're putting in place. Now, Will, you mentioned housing. Uh, if there are not available places for people to live, like what is the, what are the, some of the options that you're working through? Well, with our cooperation with um, Junta and the New Haven Housing Authority, um, you know, I've, I've sort of learned more about uh, affordable housing in the last few months uh, than I had learned in the uh, many years prior doing this. But, uh, you know, there are uh, many um, safeguards that are in place. Folks who have had Section 8 housing, for example, in Puerto Rico, that can translate over and be accepted here. Um, and then they can get on a um, Section 8 voucher list here and, and get some housing through that program. There's FEMA support that allows for some temporary support and stay, um, and then can, if they're registered through the system, can help those folks get some other uh, resources, whether that's temporarily a hotel, uh, while other more permanent placement is sought. Many folks we found are, are connecting with family and folks that they're familiar with, um, but that could complicate matters for that family based upon their particular lease or or their circumstances and can add a strain to them. So what are the supports we can provide uh, to those folks to not put them in any danger for their housing situation, but also understand the need um, temporarily and potentially long-term for these folks. So really, um, we've treated it like uh, we do any other emergency. So we've, the mayor has instituted our emergency operations center. So Rick Fontana and, and his team are coordinating meetings, and really that's just a, a method of making sure we're consolidating efforts, communicating um, well, getting resource information out there to the affected folks, um, and, and making sure that information is available at our schools and our school-based health clinics and so forth. So it's available uh, to folks who may need it. Will Clark is Chief Operating Officer of New Haven Public Schools. Thanks, Will.
You're welcome. Also, thanks to Marta Bentham from Hartford Public Schools and WNPR's Jeff Cohen. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, enrolling in schools one way to help displaced residents. What about finding a home or other services? We'll check in with the Commissioner of the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection, and Jackie Rabe Thomas will stay with us. This is Where We Live. More after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're checking in on Connecticut's response to help Puerto Ricans and others displaced after Hurricane Maria. With much of Puerto Rico still without clean water and electricity, some have left and moved to the mainland. On the phone with us now is Commissioner Dora Shariro. She is the she leads the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. Uh, Commissioner Shariro, welcome to the show. Good morning. So, tell us a little bit about uh, how your agency is leading the efforts, or at least helping coordinate all of uh, the efforts around the state. You bet. Um, Well, we knew that this hurricane season was going to be especially active, and it didn't for some time appear that anything could be more impactful than uh, Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. And then Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, Uh, the governor anticipating that a large number of evacuees would seek shelter with family and friends here in Connecticut, directed our agency to um, pull out all the stops and prepare the state Uh, to receive evacuees from the islands. Uh, Our response to this storm uh, is very much the same as uh, it is to all other storms, Uh, and that means that we contacted all of our state agency partners and um, non-governmental friends. That would include, of course, United Way, 211, Red Cross, and Salvation Army, and together to activate a plan, tailor a plan, Uh, that would address the immediate and longer-term needs of those folks who are finding refuge here uh, with uh, here in Connecticut. So you're Um, holding weekly calls with different department agencies? Yeah, I was just about to say, we we still confer on a weekly basis, and in fact, even as we speak right up on the third floor of our building, there's a group that's assembled to continue to focus on the area of housing, which we recognize is going to be a continuing and indeed a a growing uh, area of interest for uh, for everyone. Uh, Jackie Rabe Thomas is in the studio with us, education reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. We focused a lot of today's show on education because uh, now 600 students are, are enrolled uh, throughout the state uh, from Puerto Rico, but there are other needs as well. Jackie? So many of the, the people who are coming here also have very young children who are not school age, so we're talking about daycare or preschool. And so the Office of Early Childhood has lifted the requirement that the school-based centers have health care and immunization records to enroll. And for the family-based providers, they can call the Department of Public Health, and they've circulated that phone number to easily have access to Puerto Rican health immunization records to get them enrolled. When it comes to slots for you know, subsidies for parents to actually help get some funding for to enroll their kids, However, the, there's a really long wait list. About 8,000 kids are currently on that wait list to um, not Puerto Rican um, people fleeing, but just because of other state budgetary reasons and other, other issues that have led to about 8,000 people on a wait list to get subsidies for care for kids. Um, those who are coming from Puerto Rico are not given priority on that wait list. Um, and when the wait list does open, um, which is expected soon, the people at the who are already at the top of the wait list will come first, followed by those who are coming from Puerto Rico. So um, 
there's there's not exactly daycare help for mm-hmm. for those with young children who need it. Commissioner Shariro, uh, besides uh, you know these these uh, daycare uh, concerns with not having a place to place their young children, what are some other issues that you're dealing with with public housing? Uh, whether what about uh, Medicaid enrollment? I'm just curious, what are some of the issues you're hearing from? Yeah, um, 211 has become a phenomenal resource, and uh, if you go on their website, you'll see a, a daily recap of the of the number of calls and the and the kinds of questions and concerns that uh, that folks are raising. Uh, as Jackie had mentioned, um, there are quite a few inquiries about um, food, uh, which would include providing assistance for families who are assisting with the sheltering as well as eligibility for, uh, for government programs such as SNAP and WIC. Um, with the season changing, there's, uh, there's interest in securing um, season-appropriate clothing. We're getting questions about vaccinations so that pets that they brought with them uh, can continue to remain uh, here. Uh, Child care and schooling you've already uh, thoroughly uh, addressed. Um, there are quite a few questions about uh, seeking employment. Uh, as well as securing unemployment insurance um, because people are beginning to recognize it's going to be quite some time um, before they can go home. Other very basic things like securing either Connecticut IDs or replacing the IDs um, that they left behind uh, on the islands, uh, as well as uh, obtaining vaccinations for either child care facilities or to enter school, as was noted, and then ongoing health care. United Way 211 has a list that is in excess of 400,000 programs and services uh, in Connecticut, and so it's a great go-to resource um, for those who are are coming from the islands as well as their families, as well as all the state and local agencies that are mustering to provide them um, the uh, the, the assistance that they're seeking. Uh, Commissioner, could I ask, uh, in terms of any additional support from FEMA, what is your agency hearing? Well, we're in regular uh, contact uh, with FEMA, and um, we, of course, have made um, regular inquiries uh, about um, uh, assistance. But um, before I go any further, thank you for reminding me. It's really critical that anyone, um, whether or not they enrolled for for assistance from FEMA uh, before they left the uh, Virgin Island or uh, Puerto Rico, that when they come to Connecticut, that they refresh that registration with their current address, and if they did not register um, before they left, um, that, there, that there is opportunity for them to do so here, and it's strongly encouraged that they do that. That's, um, that's step one to, um, to getting assistance. Uh, before we run out of time, Commissioner Shariro, we did get an email from a listener who relocated to Connecticut from the U.S. Virgin Islands. They went to the Connecticut DMV, but because they don't have the necessary paperwork, they're fleeing a disaster area, they were turned away. What can you tell them? Um, I would, um, I would uh, tell them or ask you to get us um, their, their name if you have it, and we will make contact with them and see what we can do to, um, to address that situation. And I'll pass it on to uh, DMV as well. Uh, Dora Shariro is Commissioner of the Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. This agency is the, the point agency, so to speak, uh, in this collaboration to help uh, many people after Hurricanes Maria and Irma. Commissioner Shariro, thank you for your time. Hey, my pleasure.
Uh, this is where we live. We, we didn't want to miss talking about uh, the assistance in the higher education system. On the phone with us now is uh, Serafin uh, Mendez, professor of communications at uh, Central Connecticut State University. Serafin, welcome. Thank you. Good now, morning. We just have a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you, we've been hearing about different efforts. I know Central Connecticut State University has been working to help some of these displaced students from University of Puerto Rico continue their higher ed. Can you tell us briefly? Yes, this was uh, an initiative uh, launched by our president, Dr. Sulma Toro, uh, because uh, as there are many parts uh, to this devastation and the aftermath of the storm, uh, she asked, what can we do to bring some relief to the displaced students from the 11 campuses of the University of Puerto Rico? And uh, we put together a team effort comprised of many sectors in the university uh, to allow some of these students to come to Central and finish the semester uh, because their semester has been disrupted and they will not be able to finish the current fall semester until perhaps some point mid-March, uh, end of March. So we flew, uh, they flew uh, to Connecticut and we have 22 students who have been able to resume the semester um, using, uh, you know, one of the semester sessions that we have at the CSU and they seem to be adapting and integrating very well. Now, we know this program is called the UPR-CCSU Air Bridge. Uh, WMPR's uh, education reporter David DeRoche has covered this and has spoken with you. Uh, we're going to link to our website, uh, wmpr.org slash where we live. Also, uh, Twitter for people to learn more about uh, this program. And, uh, Seraphine, before we run out of time, how many students do you expect will this grow um, next semester? Uh, well, we know now we now we have 22 students, uh, and uh, we expect that a significant number of them will stay for the spring semester, and we intend to make it available. Uh, the Board of Regents for Higher Education have authorized some provisions so that they could come during the spring semester and most likely the fall of next year as well until the situation gets normalized at the University of Puerto Rico. That's Serafine Mendez, Professor of Communications at CCSU. Thank you for joining us. And again, we'll send out that link for our listeners to learn more. Thank you. Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, always great to hear from you. Thank Thanks you for your reporting, me. education reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to WNPR intern Sarah Bly. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>